0: Today on Maine Calling, The Remarkable Life of Cornelia Flyrod Crosby. Flyrod Crosby is a major figure in the history of the Maine outdoors. Born in 1854 and battling illness much of her life, she became the first registered Maine guide and would become nationally known for her syndicated columns chronicling her outdoor adventures. I'm Keith Shortall, and today on the program, we'll learn more about Fly Rod Crosby's pioneering efforts to make Maine a destination for hunters, fly fishers, hikers, and campers, and her role as an ardent conservationist who helped establish bag limits and promoted the practice of catch and release. Crosby is also recognized for breaking barriers for women and serving as a role model of her philosophy of independence and athleticism. And as always, we want to hear from you. The legacy of Flyrod Crosby, Main Calling is next. This is Main Calling. I'm Keith Shortall. Flyrod Crosby. If you recognize the name, you're probably either a main history buff, a fly fishing enthusiast or you're from the Rangeley region. But there was a time in the late 1800s when Cornelia Flyrod Crosby was quite well known. Her writing on outdoor adventures appeared in the Chicago Evening Post and other national newspapers. She was recognized as a pioneer who promoted the Maine outdoors as an ecotourism destination long before there was even such a phrase. I'm Keith Shortall and today on the program we'll learn more about the contributions of Fly Rod Crosby, which this week were recognized by the unveiling of a statue at the headquarters of the State Department of Inland Fisheries and Wildlife in Augusta. My guests for the hour, Bill Pierce, he's a former director of the Outdoor Heritage Museum and Rangeley Lakes Historical Society, and Earl Shettleworth, Maine State historian and co-author of the book, Flyrod Crosby, the woman who marketed Maine. We invite you to join the conversation. Email talk at org. post a comment on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram, or give us a call 1-800-399-3566. Welcome to the program. Um, we, we'll get into this, uh, how Flyrod Crosby found interest in in the outdoors and tell a little of her of her story. But for the uninitiated, why is Fly Rod Crosby such an important figure? And Bill Pierce, will go to you first.
1: Well, you you really have to look at um, the time she lived her life. Uh, Women didn't have the right to vote. Um, Outdoor sports were a male-dominated, of course, um, at the time, uh, pursuit. The guides in Maine, in let's say around 1904, there were thousands of Maine got registered Maine guides thanks to her work to get uh, guides uh, registered in our state. And yet there were only three women that were actually guided um, at the time. So she was a pioneer. Uh, She just made huge leaps in and women's rights actually through her actions and uh, that's what really makes her so special she took risks um she was eloquent and uh she she got people engaged and it it really did change the landscape
0: yeah uh, earl Shuttleworth, what's your what's your take on the importance of Flyrod crosby as a as a figure
2: well i think bill has already expressed it very well but i would just add that i think that um she really emanated in her lifestyle uh this true commitment to life in the outdoors and of course this came from the fact that um Uh, She, as a a very uh, young person, uh, experienced um, a serious case of tuberculosis and was really determined to overcome that. And the way people overcame that disease in those days was to get as much fresh air as possible. And so she began to adopt uh, the lifestyle of the outdoors. uh, And through the decades after that, she really emerged as an emblematic uh, figure uh, of an advocate for uh, the sporting life, uh, both hunting and fishing uh, in the Maine woods, particularly in the northwestern region of Maine. Uh, And I think that we we owe a great debt to her uh, by the fact that she really committed her life to pursuing these activities and to publicizing them and to sharing them and to popularizing them. So let's go uh, drill down a little bit
0: on kind of her beginnings. And I, as I was researching for this, I realized I discovered that there really, there really isn't a lot of detail about her childhood. But as you pointed out, we know she's born in uh, Phillips in uh, 1854. So this is prior to the Civil War. This is in Franklin County. And as you say, she's. Uh, contracts tuberculosis. And tuberculosis, in fact, has affected the whole family in a pretty serious way.
2: Yes. um, Her father uh, died of tuberculosis when she was less than two years old. Uh, He was a successful businessman in Phillips, but it left... um, uh, her family, her mother, she, and her older brother, and her older brother had also contracted tuberculosis and was eventually to pass away from from that disease. but um, she overcame it and and it's really remarkable uh, her 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 commitment, her stamina, her determination, the fact that um, uh, this was a very serious disease in the 19th century before the modern methods of treating it were found. Uh, many people passed away from it. Um, she lived to be 92, and I think that uh, that shows a, a life of determination, really. Really amazing. And uh,
1: Earl, she was, she was uh, actually born in Strong, wasn't she?
2: Or she's buried in Strong. She's buried in Strong, but I believe she was uh, born in Phillips. Okay, yes. thank you. Yeah. I, I sit at the, at the feet of the
1: master. Well, <laughs> uh, most of what I learned was from Earl's book. Well, and maybe you uh, should go out to eBay right now because it's out of print and you can get a copy for $168 today.
2: I know. Wow. I know. No, I was just there is uh, one
1: bargain on A Books for $39. Yeah, well, you Historical know, Society, it's interesting I that it.
2: you mentioned that, Bill, because <laughs> the book came out in 2000. It was published by Tilbury, which was a very fine main publisher. It's now absorbed into a larger company. And, um, uh, at that point, uh, Julia Hunter, who was my co-author, uh, and I uh, promoted the book extensively, uh, maybe in the spirit of Flyrod's own promotion of of the Maine Woods, uh, <laughs> and I had just not caught up with the fact that, A, it was out of print, and B, that it had become so expensive on, on eBay. I went to look after I was talking um, <laughs> recently to someone who was saying that they'd They'd paid seventy dollars for a copy, and someone else uh, had paid hundred dollars for a copy. So I went on eBay this morning. and I found that thirty-nine dollar copy.
1: <laughs> well, if mothers and fathers want to uh, encourage their 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 daughters uh, to aspire and and work hard and lift themselves up, Flyrod's story is so well presented in that book, and I thank you for it. I I tried to uh, get the publishers to reprint it from the museum museum perspective twice it's a great book folks go get it and if you can <laughs> if you can't find
0: it right away maybe we can give a uh just some of the story here today in this hour um because it's it's interesting um she doesn't discover the the outdoors immediately necessarily she she works as a bank teller and uh and a telegraph operator or er, earl yes. before yes. so, uh,
2: so uh, well, and you see, um, uh, Keith, these were some of the very limited opportunities for work for women. Uh, basically, uh, if if a woman did not decide to remain in the home or maybe be a farm wife or whatever in that period, um, there weren't many opportunities. There, there was an opportunity to teach, uh, there was an opportunity to do clerical work, i.e., a, uh, bank teller um or of course the telegraph was just coming in in this period so that was an opportunity as well and it was really uh in in phillips when she was um, working in the telegraph office the telegraph office was also the office of the newspaper that had been founded in the late 1870s the phillips phonograph uh and of course if we remember edison invented the phonograph in 1877 this newspaper was started shortly thereafter and picked up that name and so she really worked her way gradually uh, both into her writing career but also of course into her career as a sportswoman um some of the first indications we have of her sporting um was when she was um uh fishing uh in the 1870s uh in uh the the uh, mount blue region and she's in her 20s at this point yeah she's in her 20s and in 1878 uh there's a record that she fished in the mount blue area uh with an alder uh fishing rod and word of her uh fishing prowess uh reached um Farmington uh where there was a very fine maker of uh, fishing rods charles wheeler and he made a bamboo rod for her and gave it to her and that was kind of the beginning um right in the late 1870s kind of coincided with her working at the phillips phonograph and at the same time discovering uh the glories of uh of fishing so she's and wanting to
1: save her life i mean you know yes, she, she, she... she. you know her doctors said you know cornelia you're going to die very young if you do not get out and get plenty of fresh air. The, uh, some of the guys spoke about the fact that she became so avid that, uh, and tramping around the woods so much, she was difficult to keep up with. <laughs> so, uh, uh, so, that, apparently, you know, so
0: apparently, so apparently, but so then it worked then, this this prescription of uh, fresh air and, and uh, being outside actually uh, worked. In terms of her. And health.
1: I, it also, it, it changed her spirit um, and, and and mind over that ailment and, and overcoming it. You know, how often do we hear that a good attitude is the best cure for a disease and, and a willingness to fight? And she typified that her whole life. She took real risks um, when she proposed the guide bill. Uh, because she had made so many friends and these various guides that had helped her in the Rangeley region. But she realized as a promoter that to try to get folks to come back after they had a terrible experience with some fly-by-night farmer who had called himself a guide, that she had to remarket to somebody to replace that person. There was no problem with the product. I mean, the hunting and fishing was you know superb and it is to this day and, but you know if you, if if you lose a customer be, because of a bad performance by an unregistered guy and that was her motivation and a lot of her friends were very upset because they didn't want the government involved the Rangeley guides and sportsmen association well it was called the Rangeley guides association first was formed cuz they wanted to combat the law Sure. Uh, so, 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 <laughs> so she was a risk taker, both I wanna socially get, and, yeah. and... I, I want to see just, if we can get,
0: get um, from where she, where she is here. She's at this point in the story. She's, um, you know, writing for the local paper and kind of getting into it. How then does she launch from there into these uh, big city newspapers and, and going to these expos? How, how did her career in this sort of realm progress from uh, right. local to national? Well,
2: well, first, um, we, we've just picked up on her in in the late 1870s. And um, uh, what we have to uh, remember is that during the 1880s, she became increasingly involved uh, in fishing in the Rangeley uh, Lake area and building uh, this very dramatic reputation of her ability to not only um, fish uh, very skillfully, but also produce large numbers of trout and other fish in in any given moment. Uh, She she built up this sort of persona, this reputation. And then uh, she actually began officially to write uh, for the Phillips phonograph, a column on sporting around 1889. Uh, And from 1889 until around 1905, 1910, um, she really breaks into print. Um, She's not only in the Phillips phonograph uh, almost weekly with a column about sporting, but then she branches out. uh, It later, by the way, becomes a a paper called The Maine Woods. Uh, But then she also um, writes for uh, a statewide sporting paper that's published by in Carlton, in Bangor. And that paper gets a much wider um, audience than the Phillips Phonograph or the Maine Woods. Obviously, uh, those two papers are regionalized, whereas uh, the Maine Sporting Paper from Bangor uh, goes not only to Maine, but to the sports people all around the country who are interested in sporting in Maine. And that allows her, as a springboard, to write for other major sport outlets around the country including field and stream uh, so by the early 1900s um she's really a household word uh in the sporting world uh through her extensive writing your prolific writing it gets hired
0: by Maine central railroad to promote sporting camps uh, and this is at a time when like wealthy sportsmen are are, are coming to Maine to get away, and so so, so she does this aggressively. Right? She goes out of state. She goes to New York to Madison Square Garden, famously what sets up uh, this.
1: Um... She didn't. She didn't just. Go, it's not like she was just hired. She went to the president of the main Central Railroad and proposed the idea. <laughs> right. I mean, this is the type of I mean, this woman's got starts in her in in, in her collar. Um she said, you know, we could, we've got to go and be a part of this this huge uh first one at Madison Square Garden. I think that was eighteen ninety five. That's correct, Bill. 1895. 1895. Yeah. And uh and she actually uh she had a cabin built and then disassembled by a rail car. She brought uh, at the time uh, they an exorbitant sum of six hundred dollars worth of stuffed animals, including <laughs> a full-mounted moose. Uh, and I mean, she she went all out. Uh, she brought uh, right down to bringing uh, special guests that visited the booth uh, spruce gum. And she had fresh pine boughs and balsam fir and and tanks of live fish eventually. I mean, she was an innovator and she 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 and her guides, her guides would go uh, with her. Ed Grant and some of the more notable guides in the Rangeley region would go with her and they couldn't buy a drink. They were taken out to dinner and and just the cause to celeb i mean yeah. she was a rock star and did she, she i
2: i read
0: that she wore some she wore a, a sort of a controversial dress at, at one of these earl expo- tell
2: them about that oh yeah <laughs> well um among other things she was a pioneer in women's sporting clothing um you know she recognized that uh you didn't go into the main woods um you know with your uh, summer whites on uh that that were you know uh, covered covered your your shoes almost you know um and so she had designed um trimmer uh women's clothing uh for uh, people to uh to, to go into the woods in and and this, this had created its own uh, discussion in the press as to whether you know, this was appropriate or not for women. But um, you know clearly, um, the photographs show that it was a perfectly discreet and beautifully um, designed outfit, uh, but it was just much more practical, allowed women to be much freer if they were hunting or fishing. Yeah. Um, I just want to add to what Bill has said about um, the sports shows. They were really amazing. And the major one, of course, as he's mentioned, was the 1895 one in Madison Square Garden in downtown New York. However, uh, these were replicated for several years in the 1890s in Boston, New York, and Philadelphia. Correct. And they, they really brought uh, a lot of attention uh, to Northwestern Maine and the sporting experience there. Um, the one relic from all of these wonderful items that she put together to promote Maine at these sports shows, uh, is the remarkable album of photographs uh, that is now at the Maine State Museum. And the book that Julia and I did on Fly Rod, the second half of that book has 100 out of about 125 or 30 photographs reproduced from that album. Those photographs were taken by an extraordinary photographer who was in Farmington, uh, Edwin R. Starbird. And he was active in Farmington from the 1880s and the 1890s. And he was the great photographer of the Maine woods. He not only worked in Rangeley, but he also worked in the Moosehead and Katahdin region as well. He produced over 600 photographs of the sporting life in those regions in the 1880s and 90s. They are a single greatest record that we have of life at that time in the Maine woods. And Mm -hmm. Flyrod prevailed upon him to create an album for her, a big album, which she then put on a table at these uh, sports shows uh, in the big cities of America. And then people would flip through and they'd see the photographs and they'd learn about what sporting was like in Maine. Interesting. All right, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll continue this discussion
0: about the legacy of Flyrod Crosby. Give us a call, 1-800-399-3566. We'll be right back.
3: Listener support brings us Maine Calling with help from Maine Senior Guide, an online resource of services and information for older Mainers and their families. More at com. And Collins Center for the Arts, presenting the Red Hot Chili Pipers, a fusion of Scottish music and rock pop anthems on February 25th. Do you have a passion for public media, experience in digital video production, and an interest in connecting Gen Z to local green jobs? Maine Public is hiring. We're seeking a social video specialist for our new American Graduate Jobs Explained initiative. You'll be working with a team to create social media content and vertical videos that help educate high school and college students about the work opportunities available in main screen sector. For more information and to apply online, visit mainpublic.org careers. Application deadline is February 19th. Thank you.
0: Welcome back. This is Maine Calling. I'm Keith Shortall. Today on the show, the life and legacy of Flyrod Crosby, my guests, Bill Pierce, former director of the Outdoor Heritage Museum and Rangeley Lakes Historical Society, and Earl Shuttleworth, longtime Maine State historian and co-author of a book about Flyrod Crosby. Share your comments and questions, email talk at mainepublic.org, comment on our Facebook page or on Twitter or Instagram or give us a call, 1-800-399-3566. That's 1-800-399-3566. Calling in now is Bonnie Holding. She was a master main guide, is is a master main guide for more than 30 years and longtime program coordinator for Casting for Recovery. Bonnie, thanks for giving us a call. Hey, no problem. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Hi, (laughs) Bill. Hi, Bonnie. you, You all know each other, I'm sure. Tell, uh, you, you've you've heard of what uh, what the panel has sort of said about Flyrod Crosby and the legacy and importance of her as a figura. Let me ask you the same question. what 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 what's the importance of Flyrod Crosby for you and her role? Well
4: for me, yeah, for me in being a female guide, and especially when I was first guiding, I was one of few, and thank goodness now I'm one of many, but I was one of few. Um, not just in Maine, but actually, I didn't realize, on the East Coast. But to be able to um, do what I do is kind of because of her legacy, you know. And I also, which was kind of cool, is I hung around in her old stomping grounds. So it just, it you know, it's an important part of our Maine heritage is knowing that she started this, this whole legacy of um, creating, you know, a, I guess, a sportsman paradise.
0: Yeah, so... You know, so explain, in over 30 years, how have things changed with respect to, I don't know, how women are received into this uh, culture?
4: I don't think it's as tough as it was. You know, I had, I I know Bill's going to be laughing when I say this. I didn't have an issue, um, you know, with kind of getting into that culture, but it was because I was brought up with a bunch of brothers, and my husband's a retired game warden, so I hung around those guys all the time. And then... I was kind of the only female guide in a lot of the sporting camps that I worked in. Um, So, you know, I just did it. And for a while I'd hear from other women guides that they had to fight their way through it. And I didn't, I just did my job and went about my business. But today, now you're seeing more and more women are doing this. They're they're getting into the outdoor sports and they're getting into guiding and leading their own trips. I think it's a great thing. Not just doing women's trips, People mistake about me is that most of my sports in all the years that I guided, most of my sports were men. I had very few women's sports, hmm. and so it's kind of just that it's now uh, branching out more. So there are women doing just women's trips, but they're they're just guiding, plain and simple. They're just guiding.
0: And, and this is hard to know, but would you guess that would you say that Fly Rod Crosby really made this possible, or at least made it happen more? You know, sooner than it otherwise might have.
4: I think that I think that's an honest answer to that. Um, one of the one of the things that I found interesting is way back when, when they had the hundredth anniversary of of Maine guides. I wasn't I wasn't part of the Maine Professional Guides Association at that time, but I was invited to go down um, to the legislature. They were going to you know be in front of the House of Representatives and the Senate. One of the things I was amazed at is after I was introduced, how many people raised their hands and said, you know, my great-aunt or my great-grandmother or my grandmother, you know, some female relative of theirs from years past had been guided, so it's really nothing new. It's just it was nothing promoted.
0: Right, right. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate you uh, joining us. Bonnie Holding, a uh, Master Main Guide and longtime coordinator forecasting for uh recovery i'm gonna try to i'm having a little bit of a problem with my phones here but i'm gonna try to bring in let's see if i can here i cannot i'm trying to bring in sharon from phillips and i don't know if we can if we can do that without me doing it hello hi sharon is that you yes it's me Yes, welcome to the program. I'm sorry for the little mix-up here, but you are on the air, and go ahead.
5: Well, thank you so much for this wonderful show and uh, and for uh, taking my call. And also, the presentation yesterday was wonderful of the statue. It was just fabulous. But I have yes, a long-time was. question. I live in Phillips, Maine, and I moved into my house maybe seven years ago. And uh, my girlfriend, Pam Matthews, wrote a children's book on fly rod. And I was told when I moved in, and also her whole book has this house to it that Flyrod lived in this house in her childhood. Now, I thought her father and brother both died here, but i 'm unclear about that. I think it 's in the book though, but then the mother needed to move away because she couldn 't afford it it 's a a very pretty ornate brick house, and it 's on Pleasant Street. And uh, what I was told, and I'd like to clarify this, is that she moved away, but the family kept a little piece of land right next door because she loved Phillips so much and she wanted to retire here. So years later, she built this little house right now which is where it's 17 Pleasant Street and a lot of the write-ups about her say she was born in that house but from what I understand that's where she retired that she really was in this house and it makes more sense to me because her Her father was a businessman, and it's a nice house, and at the time, Phillips was a very um, wonderful—I mean, it's still a great town, but it was a a little little bit more affluent at the time, so there were bigger houses and all. So I just wondered if you could clarify that, because the house is all through the children's book that wonderful Pam Matthews wrote, and it's beautifully illustrated for children.
2: Great, great. Well, thank you. Uh, Any comments? Uh Uh-huh yeah I, I would say that i i believe that the story that we've just heard about the two houses is correct as, as far as i understand bill yes. would you yes yeah, yeah. i've been yeah, i've the, the, been the, i've been in the the wood frame structure mm-hmm, not far mm-hmm.
1: from the phillips historical society by by the way and folks i i encourage you to go to the phillips historical society if you're interested in this topic or any of the of the sporting history of the region they have a wonderful collection there um uh really fabulous and and lo- two lovely little houses on the street and i think it speaks to fly Rod's, uh character that not just because that property was available that she she wanted to take care of her mother and um that she she built another home right next to where she was born
0: All right, great. We're going to take another call here. Let's go to Nicole in Belfast, she's also a Maine guide inspired by Fly Rod. Hi, Nicole. Welcome to the program.
6: Hi, Keith. Thanks so much for doing this wonderful show about Fly Rod and for taking my call. Um, So I'm a newer guide, and uh, when I first moved to Maine, Fly Rod Crosby was one of the first historical figures I learned about and I was totally captivated by her story Um, I'm from New York State originally and was also captivated by the story of Anne Bastille, who was an Adirondack guide and Though I was really drawn in by both of these women's amazing stories I had no idea that it would lead me to becoming a guide myself um, one day And so, um, you know, moving out of the mountains and the woods over to the coast, um, I have a business, Dory Woman Rowing, in Belfast, where I offer lessons, guided tours, workout, and specialty rows, like full moon rows, in my traditional style wooden dory boat. Um, But I really feel like some of – like the earlier caller, the master main guide – that I'm part of that legacy. And um, I know that there are many of us female guides out there in Maine, and Maine is only one of two states, the other being New York State, that have this kind of program um, that, you know, uh, stand on the shoulders, so to speak, of Fly Rod Crosby. So um, I think it's wonderful that you're doing the show, that the statue was unveiled. And I think you should do a show uh, with female guides in Maine.
0: All right.
2: We've, we'll take a note there. Thank you. <laughs> thank you to, There's thank the you voice go. of
1: Fly Rod right there. Yes. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. All right, I facts. want to
2: just pick up on, on one thing that caller mentioned. She mentioned about the Adirondacks. And I think just to put a little bit of perspective on Fly Rod's world uh, in Western Maine, in the post-Civil War period, there were two great sporting areas that emerged in the Northeast in America, one was in the Adirondacks in, in northern New York, and the other was uh, the western region of, of Rangeley in Maine. And in they both started about the same time, right after the Civil War. Uh, one of the first um, actually tangible uh, activities that we find in Rangeley is the founding of the Aquastic Angling Club by men from out of state, uh, sportsmen who were fishermen uh, in 1869. Uh, and then from there on in, you have this very development of um, uh, private clubs, uh, private individuals, buying land and building camps, and then uh, a, a huge explosion of commercial fishing and hunting camps in the region as well. But again, two major parallel regions uh, in the same time frame, 1870 to the early 1900s. Okay.
0: We're uh, going to take, sh- take a quick Earl. break here
2: first, but I need to bring oh. in, uh, sorry to interrupt, but I need to bring in
0: uh, Zach uh, Selly. He's curator of archives at the Ma- Maine State Museum, and he's been patiently uh, waiting. Zach, w- welcome to the program.
7: Oh, welcome. Thank you.
0: So you're, you're, I understand you're working on uh, an exhibition that will include uh, some of Flyrod's story. Can you tell us a little bit about what that's, what, what that looks like?
7: Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, so at the museum, you know, while we're closed, we're working steadily behind the scenes on bits for the grand reopening. Uh, and, you know, and through that, we're looking at ways where we can connect personal stories, you know, to objects to, you know, illuminate on the past, but also sort of bring in, you know, more of a modern relevance and uh, how these uh, people from, from Maine and, and these stories connect to our modern lives. And in one section of this, uh, you know, kind of large exhibit program, uh, we are focusing on Crosby um, to tell her story, you know, bring more awareness to her personally, because um, not everybody is fully aware of her. Um, but also, you know, as a lot of people are mentioning, you know, being able to draw that line from her work in the promotion of Maine as a destination, you know, which she so diligently worked at, but also bring in, you know, her work with uh, the preservation and conservation of natural resources, you know, her work with establishing the Maine's guides program, you know, advocation for hunter safety and so on, you know, to allow you know museum visit- visitors in the future to to view that changing landscape of Maine in a more holistic way, you know, while recognizing Crosby, you know, and other people's contributions.
0: Yeah, so are there any it's an particular? Time for us. Yeah, any particular uh, fl- fly rod Crosby s- story that stands out to you, or that you?
7: Oh, I mean, she was, you know, a very unique and dynamic person. Um, but, you know, but one of the things that I always find fascinating was her ability to reach so many people um, and engage in such a strong way. You know, as mentioned, you know earlier um, from Earl, you know, her newspaper columns were republished well outside of her Maine, and you know, her you know adventures at the Sportsman shows were covered by national press. But she always sort of pushed this. You know, boundaries. She did everything a little bit bigger and a little bit better than most people could have imagined. Um, there is this one newspaper article that was printed um, that I love in which you know, Crosby is paired with her friend Annie Oakley and two other well-known sportswomen of the day, and it's called uh, For Women Who Can Use a Shotgun Better Than Many Men. You know, it's a great article, and it really puts her abilities and accomplishments up against, you know, any male sharpshooters of the day, um, even though it's a little, you know, it's a little mythology. You know, this mythology is, is starting to grow as she becomes this, you know, celebrity and, and you know, well-known figure across the country. Sure. But what's interesting, you know, is like at the end of the day, she's, she's really just a, a modest individual. You know, she wrote about Maine. She wrote about its people. She loved the outdoors, and she really just wanted to share that with everybody. Sure. Great.
0: Appreciate it so much. Uh, Before you go, just an update on uh, how the renovations are going and when you might be back up and running.
7: Okay, yeah. I mean, well, I'm not too familiar with all of the cultural building renovation, you know, projects, but they are moving along, you know, and when the building does reopen, it's going to be a much more inviting and functional, you know, place for everybody. Um, we are looking at, the, for the museum, we are looking at a 2025 reopening date, you know, and I, as well as I know all of the museum staff, are looking forward to having everybody back in, you know, at right. that time.
0: All right. Well, thanks so much for calling in today. Appreciate it. Zach Selly is curator of archives at the Maine State Museum. We'll take another quick break. This is Maine Calling. We'll be right back.
3: Listener support brings us Maine Calling with help from Eastern Basements, a division of Maine-owned Eastern Mold Remediation, offering crawl space repairs and waterproofing, easternbasements.com. And Six Branches Family Acupuncture, specializing in hormonal health, from menstrual cycles to menopause. More at sixbranchesacupuncture.com.
6: I'm Robin Young. Food Network's Tournament of Champions returns for its fourth season Sunday. We'll get the scoop from last year's winner, Boston-based chef Tiffany Faison. All the distractions are gone. It is you and whoever you're cooking against and the challenge, and it's go. And there's nothing more fun or rewarding or challenging, and we're all gluttons for it. Next time, Here and Now.
3: And join us for Here and Now, coming up in about 20 minutes at noon. Balanced, in depth coverage of local, state, and national politics is at the heart of public broadcasting, and keeping the electorate informed about the issues important to Maine is central to the is- mission of Maine Public. Maine's Political Pulse is a weekly discussion on the politics here at home with Chief Political Correspondent and State House Bureau Chief Steve Missler and State House Correspondent Kevin Miller. The Pulse can be heard on Fridays during All Things Considered, and it's also available as a weekly podcast and newsletter at mainepublic.org. You can have the Political Pulse newsletter delivered straight to your inbox on Friday mornings by subscribing at mainpublicorg slash pulse.
0: And welcome back. I'm Keith Shortall. You're listening to Maine Calling. Joining me, Earl Shettleworth, Maine State historian and Bill Pierce, former director of the Outdoor Heritage Museum and Rangeley Lakes Historical Society. Join the conversation. Call 1-800-399-3566, send a brief email to talk at mainpublic.org, tweet at maincalling, or post to our Facebook page or to Instagram. Let's go to the phones and bring in Libris from Augusta. Is it Libris? Did I pronounce that properly?
4: Well, my name is actually in Greek, but I don't pronounce it the Greek way. And I would like to first of all say how impressed I am with your guests, with their expertise and knowledge. But the question I have now, I have to give you a different question is, did she ever express the alternate interest about conservation? Because one of the things that has dampened my interest in fishing and hunting is that it seems that we're restocking the fish just because we're cleaning everything out. Did she ever comment on uh, the conservation of the existing fish? And I'll take your uh, comments over the radio.
0: Okay, thank you. Yeah, Bill.
1: She was actually, uh, you know, once you get involved in something and it becomes a passion, um, you generally look for ways to try to improve it. And she was very effective at that. She made many trips to the legislature in Augusta uh, to uh, get fly fishing only waters instituted to to conserve more fish. Um, She was an early uh, proponent of uh, catch and release. And uh, it it was funny, Earl, you did a fabulous job yesterday uh, at the dedication. I thank you for it. But I really noticed when you mentioned that fly rod shot the last legal caribou taken in Maine, that there was a bit of an audible gasp (laughs) <laughs> and and the thing about that is it really speaks to how we today, uh, with the phenomenon of presentism, we judge previous generations by the morals and guides of today. And, you know, this was something at her time where she could go to the New York sportsman show and she could make the same statement that I shot the last legal caribou in Maine, a large mammal species now extirpated from our state okay and there would be an audible gasp that oh my goodness it being impressed you know that oh wow uh and 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 now here today you know sadly we don't have caribou and but she's not held in i hope in 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 a bad light
2: because she took the last legal one. Right. Your thoughts? Uh, no, I think that's a great point, Bill. Um, no, I think we have to uh, judge history in the context of its time. Certainly, we we apply our own uh, views and our hindsight, uh, but also we have to temper it with understanding what the context was at the time. And, and
0: you was, know, she was active in her, uh, outfit, her, her outfit promoting bad limits. Yeah, excuse me. Yeah, no, I was just going to say she was she she promoted uh, she was a force behind bag limits and right limits on hunting and Absolutely.
1: yeah. Absolutely. Sorry, sorry to
0: interrupt, Bill. Go ahead.
1: No, I, I I wanted to say that you know you know you talk about the risk taker that she was and the trendsetter that she was. You know, going to that show in New York. I mean, women's ankles were not exposed. To that. That's right. <laughs> and she and she wears this suit and I'll take it from March uh, uh graduate paper he did on fly rod that he brought to me at the museum. It's just wonderful. And this is from the newspapers. Now, uh the suit is a perfect beauty and no mistake. It's made of green leather tanned in Paris. There are long laced boots, same as the suit. The skirt is short. The jacket <laughs> is tailor made she wears a scarlet sweater and a jaunty hat, the brim of leather with a tam-o'-shanter and a crown of scarlet. I, I mean, <laughs> this woman was not was not afraid of anything, and here she is walking into mostly an audience of men and, and saying, you know what, it's just stupid to wear a long skirt, walk walking on trails or God forbid falling out of a canoe and trying to swim in it, you know, just because it's unacceptable morally. So, I mean, common sense. And she was, she was just a brilliant risk taker and Uh, it it uh, was wonderful.
2: Keith. Yes. um, May I just uh, add another dimension to the many dimensions we've talked about, about fly rod. And that is, um, uh, around 1900 or so, uh, she converted to Catholicism, which again was, you know, something for a north Northwestern Maine uh, girl from Phillips. And as a result of that, uh, she personally raised the funds to build Our Lady of the Lake Church in Rangeley, which was completed in 1908. Uh, it is uh, beautifully intact today. It's, uh, it's really one of the, the monuments uh, to her life. Uh, and uh, I would urge people, in addition to the wonderful historical facilities that one can visit in Rangeley, to also uh, visit this church as well.
0: Did she uh, talk England much about him. why she why she con- why she converted to Catholicism? Well,
2: uh, I believe that it, it came about because um, she had a very bad accident. Uh, you, you go right. ahead, Bill. Yeah No, you're she right. Had a, uh, it, she had well, a very it, bad uh, accident in, in, the, in the late 1890s and she was um, in the main General hospital in Portland recovering for six months from, from this accident. And, um, I think it was during that period that, um, she became aware of Catholicism.
1: She yeah. was actually, um, treated on another time, uh, in Lewiston, she was treated, um, I believe it was because of the tuberculosis. It might've been because of the knee, but, uh, she was cared for by nuns who were the nurses in the Yes. Facility.
2: Yes. That and, too.
1: and and that's and at the museum in Rangeley, at the Outdoor Heritage Museum in our exhibit on Fly Rod, I was a lady came in one day and I loved my job because it was like antiques roadshow. And she says, I have this. It belonged to Flyrod. And it was a tin filled with a bread tin, a cookie tin filled with all her records of her fundraising efforts oh. to raise the money for the museum. And she was just really smart. She went to all the lodging properties and put on the front desk uh, opportunities and envelopes to raise money, donate a dollar so we can build this church here in a closet. And she had all the records and the letters to the cardinal in Boston. And he promised to come and give the first, uh, the first service in the church if she ever managed to build it. Well, by cracky, she did. And uh, she got it done, and um, yeah, there it sits.
0: Interesting story. Let's. I want to bring in uh, Brent West. On the uh, yeah. he, he's the executive director of uh, High Peaks Alliance, uh, and they were they placed the statue of Flyrod. rod. Um, and welcome to the program, uh, Brent. Are you there? Yeah,
8: I'm here. Thanks for having me. Yes, thanks. Um, thanks for yeah. Go ahead. We uh, really enjoyed the program. We were able to help pull off yesterday at and um, And the reason we were interested in Fly Rod Crosby is we have a heritage trail, the Fly Rod Crosby Trail. Um, and the really, I don't need to go into that, but the goal of the trail is to help residents and visitors take an active interest in preserving this uh, unique character of the high peaks communities um, and the landscape up here. But the reason why I was calling today i in my research i wanted to ask a question i know flyrod crosby coined the term maine the nation's playground and in a paper by george lewis uh he gives credit for the term vacation land our state motto uh to a maine central railway publicist in the 1890s i didn't know if there was any further connection that could be dug out of that
2: um i can comment on that um at the Maine historic preservation commission in augusta there is a large collection of uh, promotional ephemera uh, from the civil war period right up into the present uh, promoting maine and i believe that there are maine central railroad publications from the early 20th century that begin to use that term vacation land in fact at one point i think they had a annual publication that used that term. So it may very well be that the railroad coined that term. But then of course, uh, around, uh, 1936, it began to appear officially on the main license plates as well.
0: Interesting. Uh, we'll try to fit another call in here. We'll go to Bud who is calling from Madrid. Hi, Bud. Welcome to the program. So it may very well be that the railroad... Bud, are you there? I don't, nope, Bud is apparently gone. Uh, Bud, uh, uh, according to my notes, um, ha, created the Fly Rod Crosby trail that we were just talking about and is the trail manager. Um, so so uh, hearing from all of these people, it's, it's as if, I think as we said at the top, it's as if she, um, Fly Rod Crosby was sort of the, one of the first ecotourism promoters, even before we had a phrase called ecotourism. But she was really just so, part of it is the enthusiasm she had for this. And I'm wondering uh, uh, if either of you have a sense of what, what fueled that? Because she clearly went to extraordinary lengths to promote Maine in this way.
2: Well, Keith, may we hear from her herself? This is um, one of her great quotes. She described herself as a plain woman of uncertain age, standing six feet in my stockings. I scribble a bit for various sporting journals and I would rather fish any day than go to heaven. That's that's quite a statement
1: coming from a converted (laughs) Catholic.
2: That's right. <laughs> and the other
1: thing is, Earl, you mentioned the Adirondacks and Rangeley, and it was a fabulous rivalry. But they and I'll speak on behalf of Flyrod, Rob. They couldn't even come close to competing with uh, the quality of the resource that existed in Maine. Uh, <laughs> they were catching in Rangeley at the time, uh, a five to ten pound brook trout, native brook trout in the Adirondacks, um, there was, uh, a, a, a leading biologist, uh, in Boston. And he didn't believe that the fish in Rangeley could be brook trout because they were so large. Cause at the, at the time, the Adirondacks had never produced a trout larger than five pounds. And he, he didn't believe that they could even be trout. Well, uh, Senator Fry sent sent him a box with a with an eight pound female trout in it. And he told he said that seems the good professor will have to change his textbooks.
2: <laughs> so, and, and I and I should mention that, would, would argue about the Adirondacks in comparison to the great. Well, and, and there could be no better advocate than Senator Frye. Uh, this was William P. Fry from Lewiston, who was one of our longtime senators, and in fact became um, president pro tem of the Senate. And at various times in the late 1890s and early 1900s, when we were without a vice president, he was actually a sort of a titular vice president of the United States. He was a close friend of Flyrod's. He had a camp in the Rangeley region for many years. Uh, they were they were very good friends. Uh, she, and I believe uh, we, it
1: was Flyrod that.
2: Kidded him about the fact that
1: he would sometimes lie about where his camp was because he didn't want more people coming to range. Later. That's right. <laughs> we only Can have you a, imagine a politician well, telling a fib? We only oh, no. have a
0: few, only a few seconds left, so I just want to uh, wrap up her story here. She dies in Lewiston in mm. 1946, and she was 92 years old. So it's it's striking to me that she lived through the Civil War world war one and world war two that's quite a span of time and experience um it just I, I thought that was interesting um, it, it go ahead yeah no i was just going to say I, we're, we're actually out of time but i wanted to thank you for <laughs> that was my closing wrap uh thank you both for for joining us I really appreciate uh really interesting oh my hour. pleasure
1: <laughs> Earl
0: Shettleworth is Maine State historian, <laughs> co-author of the book, Flyrod Crosby, the woman who marketed Maine, and Bill Pierce, former director of the Outdoor Heritage Museum and Rangeley Lakes Historical Society. Today's sound engineer was John Keimel. Maine Calling is produced by Jonathan Smith and Cindy Hahn. You can find past Maine Calling programs at our website, maincalling.org, And while you're there, you can subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Tomorrow on the program, marijuana use by young people. I'm Keith Shortall. You've been listening to Maine Calling on Maine Public Radio.